Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 10th, a Sunday uh, on, uh, in the year, famous year of 2022, at least famous right now. Maybe people will forget it in the future. People certainly won't forget my guest today, Michael Furtick, an old friend, an entrepreneur, an investor, and a best-selling writer. And rather than starting with his work, we're going to start, as we usually end shows, with a discussion of other people's books. Um, Michael just wrote a really interesting substack about both the relevance, the contemporary relevance of Greg Lukianov and Jonathan Haidt's The Coddling of the American Mind as well as Robert Hughes's classic Culture of Complaint, The Fraying of America. America always seems to be frayed. And there are always guys around like Michael Furtick, my old friend, who's talking to us from Boston to both analyze and perhaps defend the fraying of America. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. You look like, you look like a caveman, Michael. But you're in Boston um, and you have... Had quite a career, as I said, an, an entrepreneur, an investor, and a writer. We've known each other a number of years. Um, and I was particularly struck by your new series of essays on Substack. The first one was a really interesting reminder of the importance both of classic texts like Lukianov and Hughes. You write, in a sense, I think, as a parent, do you? Or uh, more as someone who's simply concerned about the future of American education? I am both. I'm concerned also about the future of America in its civil society and our socio-political economy and what we're doing to our kids and ourselves. And I picked up um, the Lukianov and hate we had read about, and I noticed immediately as I was reading through it, the similarities to uh, the culture of complaint by Robert Hughes. And I'm not surprised that you admire Robert Hughes. We'll tell the audience more about him in a second, as well as another book, which was a rough contemporary, actually about a year, Culture of Complaints from 93, I want to say, and another book which came out about a year or two before by a guy named Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., who was, I think, JFK's speechwriter or um, aide de camp, and he wrote that book and published it first in 1991. Um, I encountered those books, Culture of Complaint and the Disuniting of America by Schlesinger Jr. when I was, I want to say, a freshman or sophomore in high school. I finished high school in 1996. <clears throat> and those two books were written during the ascendancy of uh, two movements in education and in the world, uh, one called political correctness uh, or multiculturalism to, to uh, 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 parts of the same algorithm and another which is uh, probably best located as Afrocentrism which is sort of a, a was a pronounced version of multiculturalism in one of its strains and Robert Hughes uh, who's kind of a man after my heart but also I imagine a man after your heart Robert Hughes was an Australian he died a few years ago but he was a kind of cantankerous Australian art critic when Art critics were allowed to be not just uh, liberals and progressives, but also conservatives. And he was a conservative Australian guy who was a 
profound aesthetic literary critic and art critic, chiefly art critic. And then, um, and then the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., who was a lion of the left, who's a who's a JFK Democrat, who was worried that the that the the soup, the American soup, of everyone coming into America and becoming assimilated and part of the same soup, was turning into kind of a mixed salad, which was uh, accidentally divisive. And these guys were concerned about things that would be familiar to some of your audience members. Um, uh, on the right, Hughes was concerned about Pat Buchanan and the divisiveness of Pat Buchanan. On the left, he was concerned about Afrocentrism and uh, the increasing academic obsession with uh, things like phallocentrism. He, he uh, mocked some academics who were obsessed with Dickens for being uh, obsessed with little Mel's phallocentrism, I believe, I believe was his, his phrase. And then Arthur Alexander Jr. was pointing out the kind of the extreme versions or the dangers of the extreme versions of multiculturalism. After the 90s, of course, came the culture wars of the 90s and 2000s. After the early 90s came the late 90s and 2000s culture wars, which look nothing like the culture wars of today. And in the last five or six years, um, Trump on the one hand and his ilk was really chiefly Trump, I think. And then uh, the, the rise of the authoritarian left on the left. And hate and Lukayanov, who are um, academics, one uh, an out and out academic hate at NYU, and Greg Lukianoff, who's a who is a kind of the he's taken on what the ACLU used to do before it stopped being the ACLU, <laughs> I think, and he now defends freedom of expression uh, in academic institutions and beyond academic institutions. And these guys wrote uh, a a book con expressing concern for the direction of American education. Um, the, the, the form of book, you're right, is a Jeremiah or, or, or sort of the, the DNA of the book is a Jeremiah. A Jeremiah is the oldest and most authentic version or form of American literature um, ever since Jonathan Edwards, who predates the Republic by probably 60 years, I think, 70 years if memory serves me, um, or even before that, since the halfway covenant or the Arabella sermon in the 17th centuries, uh, 17th century, which um, lamented how much worse things are today than when they were 20 years ago, uh, when we first got to these shores or when we first built this institution or that institution. The Jeremiah is a quintessentially American and very authentically American form of literature in praise of yesteryear and in lamentation of today, because we have forgotten where, whence we came and we must restore ourselves to our, our former glory. That is an American idea, but it's also it is also an element, an ingredient, over and over again in our unequaled capacity for self renewal. Um, Bill Clinton used to say, "There's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America," and that's true. But the way we diagnose these problems is through the Jeremiah. So I I noticed when I was reading Hate and Lukianoff, and we can talk more about the substance of that book. As an American, as a parent, <clears throat> as someone who's uncomfortable with certainly Trump, but also the authoritarian left, the rise of the authoritarian left. I, I decided to read this book. I had met Lukianoff. He sent me a copy of the book, um, which was very nice, The Coddling of the American Mind, as you see on the screen now. I read it. I, was, I thought it was great. It turned out to be more of a parenting book than I had thought it, would, it was going to be. I thought. What's happening, Michael? You Your kids are younger than mine, but 
all parents, I think, in America, certainly kids under 30, 35, are seeing this. What's happened? Why, what, why are the American kids different from when you were growing up? Well, What's the change. I mean, even though, you know, when you were growing up, uh, Hughes was writing his culture of complaint, talking about the fraying of America. Schlesinger was writing books, uh, lots of books about the crisis, one kind of crisis or another in America. So as you suggest, this isn't new. The Jeremiah is a central feature of American literature. I think it's important to point out, first of all, that Haight and Lukianoff in particular wrote this book and published The Coddling of the American Mind before the pandemic. And so there are a lot of things we can say about what happened during the pandemic, but their book was published before the pandemic. Their observations took place before the pandemic. What did they observe um, and what's different? The next thing I want to, well, we'll talk about next. The next thing I want to say before I say that is that it is always true that the changes that we describe are generational or, or evolutionary, but it is always true that they are on the margin, right? So most kids are basically mostly the same as they were mostly before. And what we're seeing are changes on the margin, which could be 10, 20% of the margin. So it's a big change. But I think you can pretty much imagine that most Americans are pretty much similar to the way they were. Um, all right. So what they observe is that sometime about uh, 20 years ago-ish, sometime about 20 years ago-ish, American university administrators who had proliferated in number, who became more and more eggshell terrified of anyone's becoming offended, started to put forward policies that would protect students from the harms, and the word that is operative here, the harms, the perceived harms that were going to make it difficult for them to feel safe in places of education. And uh, there was a time from about 20 years ago to about 15 years ago-ish, you know, 10 years ago-ish, that the student body thought this was silly, that the, that the administrators were too progressive for them, that they as students did not need this kind of pr protection uh, and this kind of paternalistic protection. And then something happened uh, around what they are what they call iGen or Gen Z. I think it's kids who were born after, uh, what was it, 95? Um, I think it was. Don't, don't quote me on this. It's in my substack. Um, and this set of students who grew up in the internet age started to exhibit different behaviors, maybe because of social media and too much screen time. They started to exhibit uh, behaviors of of shell shock, of antisocial behavior. They were not well socialized. They were spending too much time on screens. Perhaps they were overparented by helicopter parented, parents, underparented by parents who were not paying enough attention to them and letting the screen be the babysitter. In any case, this group of kids were less mature than their prior cohorts. And they arrived in college very anxious. And then the important point that Haidt and Lukainov make is that these students were not encouraged to move past their anxieties, but in fact, instead, their anxieties were enhanced or catalyzed or affirmed or reified. And they were taught uh, passively and actively, they were taught to engage in behaviors that are cognitive behaviors that are often uh, associated with mental illness, such as catastrophizing, 
if this speaker comes to campus with whom I disagree, and if she makes certain utterances which, which may be uncomfortable, then I will never be able to recover. Then I will never be able to sleep again. Then I cannot feel safe at this campus. It's not just that I do not like what she has to say. It's not just that I don't want to hear what she has to say. It's not that I just that I'll protest outside or put up the counter speech. It's that I cannot function if this person is even permitted to appear. And let's let us let us hypothesize. This is a real world example. Let us hypothesize that this speaker is a pro-life speaker. Well, she is clearly directly responsible through this catastrophizing logic. She's clearly directly responsible, so would say this logic, for the murder and unwellness of women and blood is on her hands and so forth and so on. And so this kind of mental illness training, instead of training away from mental illness, training towards anti-fragility and towards self-reliance, this training uh, has turned out to make children weaker and less self-reliant, less resilient, and more dependent on the paternal state, more dependent on the institution to protect them. And they are expecting constantly to be, as they say, the authors of this book, coddled. The coddling begets further coddling. And one signal example uh, that I saw in the elementary school of one of my kids was a sign on the wall. So when I was a kid, and when you were a kid, probably there was a there was an old nursery rhyme that says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. The idea was that, yes, physical violence can cause us harm. But if someone calls me names, I will be resilient and I will let those names and those bad words bounce off me like so many bullets off Superman. Of course, it was never perfect because we do feel emotional hurt as people, adults and children, especially from from those kinds of insults playground insults, but the lesson was quite, the aspiration was quite special and superb, that we should be resilient, that we should teach our children to be resilient, that we should let those words bounce off me, and so and so forth. Michael, let me jump in. You, you talked about this. Sorry, go on. One more thing. In, school, in the elementary school, I saw on a sign on the wall that said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will always hurt me. This idea had been inverted in a sign that was on the wall of my elementary school child's classroom. And I was shocked to see that this coddling was already beginning with a, with an inversion, a turning on its head of this ethos. Please, Andrew, go ahead. So I like the sticks and stones um, reference. When I was growing up in England, my mother, when she wanted to shut us up, which was most of the time, would say children should be seen and not heard. It's an old uh, Victorian saying, no one would ever say that now. What, why is this bound up with the idea that children have something important to say when you and I both know as parents that they're full of shit? Well, I don't think that children are always more full of shit than adults are. Well, I, and I, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't, I would, as you know, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. I mean, uh, today it's not children who should be seen and not heard, it's old people. Well, the, the problem is that we have turned many of our young adults into children, and we have allowed them to remain as children. The, one, of the, one of the things that we've seen in some of our mainstream media is how that children have taken over the institutions and are behaving in infantile ways. 
you can like him or dislike him. I think there's a subject, it's a re subject of reasonable discussion. You can like or dislike what he said. It's certainly a subject of reasonable discussion. Senator Tom Cotton in the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, he's a military veteran uh, or uh, he's, a, he's a Harvard Law School graduate. He's a Harvard College graduate. He is a senator from Arkansas, young guy. He wrote an op-ed that I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the substance of which I think 65, 70% of Americans agree with, which is that in some cases, when the violence on the streets starts to become so strong during protests, not peaceful protests, but violence on the streets that uh, destroy businesses and cop cars, that you can, you can ask for the National Guard or similar or state militia State uh, State Guard to to um, to be used. I think the National Guard was the was the was the example he gave, as has happened in many times in American history, including in Los Angeles, during the during the riots uh, of some decades ago. And so uh, he wrote this op-ed. It went through many layers of review and many layers of revision and I'm sure discussion through the editorial layers of the New York Times op-ed page. It was published and then. Then after it was published, the enough staffers of the New York Times engaged in this kind of behavior that Haidt and Lukianoff uh, uh, describe a couple years earlier in their book. They protested the publication of the op-ed. They insisted that it did not meet the standards of the New York Times. They insisted that it made them feel unsafe working at the New York Times. They insisted that the mere presence of this, of this, uh, of this op-ed on their pages somehow made them feel like they could no longer work there and function. And then the New York Times editorial room, the the powers that be, caved to this this childish opinion and demand. They did not say publish the counter op op-ed, make sure that you destroy the op-ed point for point or disagree with it point for point. They said, in fact, we will now publish an addendum that will forever and anon be attached to this op-ed in the New York Times and indicate that it did not meet their standards for review. And then they they sort of threw a junior editor under the bus, which is outrageous. They also fired the op-ed editor, uh, the senior guy as well in the, in the wake of this. And it became quite an embarrassing episode, which proved up that we are allowing children to take over these institutions and training them to be so eggshell, vulnerable, and fragile that even words they disagree with are cause for harm. And the word harm is important. Harm is the phrase, it is the phrase that has legal operative meaning in American jurisprudence that allows the state or the institution acting as behalf of the, behalf of the state or as the state in loco parentis allows the state to take action. So if there's harm cognized or possibly cognized, then the authorities can take action. So we're training our kids when they don't like how teasing is going, they don't like how a disagreement's going, we're training our kids to to run to mommy and daddy in the form of in loco parentis in the institutions. And I'm struck as I was visiting recently the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and I saw, in fact, I have it here, this image by Norman Rockwell, this image by Norman Rockwell from 1943, which is an obviously important time. There's Norman Rockwell actually looking at him in the bottom, and that's the guy who's the subject of this, of this, of this painting. 
probably the most important political painting that he ever made, 1943 in American history, called Freedom of Speech. And in this, in this, in this moment, there's a town uh, a hall that is that is convening, and this guy's a farmer, and he does not want to pay for the rebuild. I think it is of the school, because the school has burned down or has been damaged. They have to rebuild the school, and he does not want taxes to be levied to pay for the school because he can't afford it because the war has been difficult, the depression has been hard, and so forth and so on. On his business, he can't afford the tax raise. Okay, he gets up, he gets up, he says his piece. The people around him listen, as you can see, they're wrapped in attention. And then the vote takes place right after the speech is made. And his opinion is the minority of opinion. The, the proposal to fund the school or fund the, the bond and the tax rise passes. And that's it. America moves on. The town moves on. And this is the freedom of speech moment where we have to listen to one another, respect one another's opinions, and then having heard one another out, decide where we go as a society. This idea that this idea that it is not possible to hear the other person's opinion because just, just having that opinion will somehow make it impossible for you to survive because of what Hayden Lukayanov say is catastrophic thinking in the spirit of mental illness. Yeah, you've, uh, you've explained, I think, Michael, why the New York Times gets on my nerves because it's a, it's a newspaper for children. Maybe that's why we have now Substack and we have guys like you on Substack more and more people, I think, are turning to Substack rather than conventional newspapers like the New York Times. It's not just um, your return to Lukianov and the hate that you cover uh, in your interesting new Substack um, reader. You're also, you, you've, you announced you were leaving California and one of the things you did on leaving was reread John Muir. What did you find about Muir that was interesting, and what did it teach you both about California and on your decision to leave? Well, I have been making a project of reading the volumes of the Library of America, which are those black volumes that you just had on screen, which are fantastic. And one of the reasons I like reading the Library of America volumes is that we have in America uh, our own literature. It is as legitimate and as marvelous and as deep and as rich as any other national literature and uh, it deserves study by Americans, especially by Americans today who might think that all the things that we're seeing today are unique in history. And of course they are in some respects, but not in others. Uh, John Muir is a giant uh, in, in Western history, in, in American history, in environmental history. He was from Scotland. Uh, he grew up in a very hard scrabble way in Scotland and moved to, I think it was Wisconsin. Yeah, I think it's Wisconsin, I read it a little while ago, at the age of 11. And they they beat the land into submission. He and his father and his brother, and they uh, they they hacked a farm out of the wilderness. And he became a naturalist. He loved animals both in Scotland and in America. And then he made his way west as an explorer and naturalist in his life, and became kind of the the godfather, along with Teddy Roosevelt, who kind of channeled I think his inner John Muir. Um, they became the godfather of the American naturalist and environmental movement, including the national parks and so forth um, that are so famous. Uh, Muir was, um, well, first of all, you should say, I should say, uh, Muir, <laughs> Muir cared a lot about trees and glaciers and bird species. And so there's a long, long set of lists in these pages um, of those things. But he was also a kind of um, American mystic in the sense that he, believed in the enormous power and divinity that was evident in the natural 
a landscape that he observed. And he believed that America was unique and had the best examples of so many natural uh, phenomena in the world. And he was a well-traveled guy. He also, in addition to cataloging these things and believing that God was present and evident in, in this natural landscape, he also came to understand the relationship between our natural world and commerce. So California uh, was already a place of the gold rush, was already a place uh, of, the, of, of the great growth that followed uh, this, uh, where uh, enormous um, flock owners of sheep would graze their, their flocks and create enormous wealth for their families and, and, and their descendants in Northern California. And he celebrated actually change. He celebrated development of, of land. He was not against development of land. He celebrated intelligent development of land. And surely we can credit him with this idea. But he was not a he was not an ideologue in the sense that he did not object to anything but conservation. He was very much in support of, of change and development of land. But he also knew and understood that when profit becomes the chief motive of life, we lose something else. And what he lamented mostly, by the way, was not the loss of beautiful land, but the loss of spiritual, the loss of spiritual interiority that came from being able to meditate on the world to from being able from that came from being able to look at the natural world and to draw inspiration from it and his not his his volume of work i think if we can draw something of it from it was really about the power of awe and i think you andrew i've known you long enough to know that you have awe and you know people who have awe and there are people in your life who do not have awe. And one of the great axes of comparison, one of the great dividing lines that cuts across all cultures and cuts across all ethnicities and demographies and ages is there are people who have awe and there are people who do not have awe. And people who do not have awe may have certain strengths or practical advantages, but there are certain truths that are not available to them. They cannot except through the mouthing of words, they cannot say, oh my God, that piece of music actually was a transformative encounter in my life. They say things like, oh, that music was very fine, or that symphony was awesome, right? The waspy British version would be very fine, very fine, very fine, when they hear a piece of music. And the California dumb version would be, oh man, it was awesome to go to this restaurant, it was awesome, because all they can come up with is awesome, which means they went there and their friends like it and they know they're supposed to like it too. Something about it was good. But these people lack awe. People who possess awe, as John Muir did, as you do, as I do, would say, wow, I am now moved in some way that might even reach a level that allows me to leave this dinner table, leave this theater in a state. Muir was awed by nature. How is this connected, Michael, with your decision to leave California? You've you've not fallen out of love, maybe, with California. Might it be fair to say you've fallen out of awe with California? Well, in fact, I'm still in awe of California, but I, I'm not um, in love with California as a place to Northern California as a place to raise kids right now. I, look, there's there. I'm very forever grateful to Northern California and to California. I'm forever grateful to Silicon Valley. Um, Silicon Valley still, I think, presents unique economic opportunities uh, in the world. I think Silicon Valley is probably to the United States what the United States is to the world. It is the most open place in America. America is probably the most open place in the world. It is open to newness. It is open to people from very different backgrounds. 
it's open to novel ideas and to big ideas and ambitious ideas. Um, I was never in love with Northern California as a as a as a resident. I was there for economic reasons and then for some personal reasons. But um, and and those 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 reasons are unique still economically. It was always a mining town. People would go make their gold and then leave if they if they could. Some of them and some would stay. Um, I I what do I <clears throat> love about Northern California and Silicon Valley? I've listed I've listed my list. It's economic openness, opportunity, cultural, intelligent. Yeah, openness. There's a kind of intellectual tradition of uh, whole earth catalog. Um, you know, let's do this in a libertarian let, way. Let's innovate our way out of problems. Let's not rely on government. Some of that's being squeezed off, but that 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 is still there somewhere. Um, I am not. Uh, I like the outdoors, but I'm not as outdoorsy as the most outdoorsy people in the world. I would probably rather uh, read than uh, go on a camping trip. Let me say it differently. I would rather read than go on a camping trip. I'd rather write than go on a camping trip. Um, I also I also uh, think Northern California is a bit of a cultural desert, except in certain areas of the arts. I think if you're into queer arts or the queer or queer theater, it is probably the best in the world. Um, I find that interesting. It's not really my go-to. Um, and and I think there are some very particular reasons that are endemic to Northern California why the why the arts are not thriving there as much as they are, say, in Southern California, where they thrive, obviously. Um, and also, look, Silicon Valley is a is a marvelous place, but like other places, it's a myopic place. My my kids, my older kids, um, are citizens of, of Silicon Valley in a lot of ways, and I want them to become broad broader minded. I want them to see places that are more politically diverse. Uh, ethnically diverse, uh, socioeconomically diverse. I want them to be affected by those things. They're kind of country kids. I want them to be more city kids or they're town kids or suburb kids. I want them to be more city kids, see different parts of the world. My older son uh, is a food guy and an art guy. And I asked him, you know, I said, look, um, you can change your mind today as soon as this conversation ends, if you want. But periodically I ask you, what do you think you might want to do when you're older? And he says to me, he's 10 years old at the time of this story. He says to me, well, dad, says, yes, you know, I like food. I like cooking. I said, of course. He says, well, you know, I've thought about being a chef for a long time. I said, yes, okay. He says, but you know, dad, I thought about it. I said, what? He says, you know, dad, owning a restaurant's a really difficult life. I said, okay. So he says, now here's the important word. The wording is important. He says, so I think I want, might want to be an investor or a startup. Just like his father. Uh, well, there you go. And, and a startup, not an entrepreneur, right? So, so here he is. He's growing up in a world where, right. of course, you're the uh, founder. You run Heroic Ventures. Yeah, and I started some companies and 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 had some nice things happen. And look, no, he's sheltered from that. He, you know, we we were living in a 1,600 square foot house in Palo Alto that we were renting. This was not a fabulous residence. Uh, you know, he thought that all of his friends' parents were rich and we were not, and that's fine. We lived a few hundred feet from the school, which is how we prioritized our geography of our house. These are good things um, and good values to instill. But still, and nonetheless, he basically grew up thinking there are basically two jobs, right? There's in starting a company, investing in companies. And I want them to go see a world that's bigger and broader. Michael, let's go. You, you mentioned John Muir's... Um sheep, her, his physical analog sheep, 
Let's move on to some different kind of sheep. Electric sheep? Uh, yeah, Philip Dix, electric sheep. You also had a really interesting Substack essay on Philip K. Dick, one of the iconic, if not the iconic, science fiction writer um, about, in many ways, Silicon Valley. Of course, uh, the author, his book, uh, uh, Do Androids Dream of Elect Electric Sheep, was eventually made into Blade Runner. And you came away from rereading Dick a little disappointed. Is that fair? Well, yes. I, look, first of all, I have to tell you, I, I loved his writing so much that my chief reaction was that I wish he were not writing sci-fi or alternate history fantasy, but instead writing something that was in a more familiar genre. And, and here's what I meant. He's an exceptional writer, sentence by sentence, character by character. He's an exceptionally imaginative. But the, the, the point of the essay that you're bringing up on the screen right now, which is in my Substack, is that his writing is so damn good that I was finally able to articulate for myself, and I shared it on Substack, why I never have come to love sci-fi. And this is why. Um, sci-fi, when it boils down to it, is like fantasy or alternate history expresses its imagination in changes of costume or technology or time-space dilation. But at the end of that calculus, costume, at the end of that calculus, it's actually pretty familiar and regular and ordinary. It's my objection to it. What do I mean by that? The value systems are all 19th and 20th and 21st century values. The good guy should be the good guy. The bad guy is the bad guy. Um, the stories are familiar. And the, the major freight, the major kind of weight of the pages and sentences, paragraphs, chapters of these books is necessarily exposition, explaining how the tribes and the factions and the government and the moons and the overlord and the new deity and the other thing all operate with one another, the prehistories and the mountains and so forth. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, I, I'm just disappointed with how not radical it is. It's supposed to be very radical. Is it's it not... missing the Jeremiah? Is the problem with Dick that the Jeremiah is not explicit? It's only kind of implicit. It's 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 a soft Jeremiah or a, uh, a Jeremiah that isn't really very clear or, or very developed. It's an excellent question. I didn't share that reservation, though you may be pointing to one that I didn't pick up. I didn't share that reservation. Um, I just think I just think it's a bit of a head fake at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I got a lot of responses privately to that Substack. To, uh, people telling me what other science fiction and sci-fi and sorry, fantasy yeah. I want to read. And and I had I had some familiarity with some of them, not all of them. And I knew that I was walking into a bit of a bramble. In fact, my substack my Substack subtitle or subheadline is I'm about to walk into a bramble. Um, this is a field where you, I mean, that's the story of your life, Michael, walking into brambles like me. That's what you and I share. You're also the author of a couple of best-selling books. So, well, certainly this one, The Reputation Economy, a best-selling book, yeah. very interesting book on you were the founder also of reputation.com. Yeah. So you know this business very well and an interesting, uh, very fun uh, spy novel set in Israel, The Hip Set. What is it about... Um, Substack, Michael, you say you enjoy, rather than going for a walk in the woods, you rather sit at home and write. What is it about Substack, do you think, from a writer's point of view that um, is so exciting? Uh, I had a conversation with my friend Keith Tier, the co-founder of uh, uh, TechCrunch last yep. week, who suggested yep. that 
Substack has essentially replaced mainstream media. The most interesting work now is by people like Michael Furtick on Substack. Interesting writers aren't wasting their time putting their stuff on the New York Times or the Washington Post. Do you think there's some truth to that? I mean, it's obviously a rather self-serving question, given you're on Substack. But what is it about Substack that excites you? Or the not just Substack, but the, the medium of Substack-like platforms? There are a lot of very interesting and smart people who are well-considered in topics of great political and personal interest to many people around the world. And they are not qualified according to the mainstream media outlets. They are not qualified to say anything that they have to say and to express themselves there. The editorial hurdles to getting into those pages are in some sense very reasonable. You, they want you to be a, a person with a voice and with a, a track record, a, a certain history, and that, that should be the case. And then increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly, they also want you to be someone who's politically palatable to them. And that could be someone who has a certain degree, uh, which I have, by the way, uh, someone who has a certain... Yeah, I mean, you've uh, got a, what, an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a law degree, so you're not a schmuck. Yeah, but yeah, both. I teach. I undergrad at Harvard uh, Law School at Harvard. I teach at Harvard Law School for a number of years now. Um, so I'm kind of in the clan. But at the same time, they want you to say certain things a certain way. They want you to say things of a certain type. They also want you to kind of swim in your lane, which is one of the most obnoxious things uh, going on right now with the with the kind of the educated elite. Is they, if you somehow are privacy guys, I am. They want to hear everything you have to say about privacy, but. Uh, they they will not believe that you have something to say about books until some other person they know who writes for N plus one or whatever has blessed you, or knighted you as someone who can write about books. And of course, that's bunk because some of the most interesting people in the world are those who are adjacent. Actually, I would say I would say British culture, which has its own elitist snobbery, but British culture does do better, I think, at least in, as compared to the United States and, and Britain. When it comes to uh, sort of elevating people who have enough skill, enough excellence in their in enough consideration in their lives to be both um, good at one thing, recognize they're both good at one thing and the other, I think uh, the Booker Prize is often shared by very serious uh, readers who happen to be actors or political people, but they're also very good readers. They're very literate people. Uh, the idea in Brooklyn, some Brooklyn hothouse that uh, someone like Andrew Keene or Michael Furtick or someone else, Keith Tier, could have anything to say about books might sound uh, just like pedophagory to them, right? Whereas, of course, um, you could throw a dart in one of the bars and they can find any number of people they'd love to hear about, hear from on books. So I think the advantage of a Substack is that, is that if you want to invest the time in having something to say and then saying it well, and your audience will respond to you, then you can, and you can say. Right. And, uh, and to remind everyone, Michael's uh, Substack page is called "Finally," and the subtext is "Books, Politics, Investing, Guts." I also have a Substack called uh, "Video from America." That they should, of course, both be followed, particularly Michael's. Michael's. Let's end um, on 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 a slightly different note. Um, last time we met, we had a delightful cup of tea in Palo Alto last year. I think it was. You said to me, well, why, you know, next book, why don't you write a defense of America? Why don't you suggest that 
things aren't so bad. I've been doing some shows about that. We did one earlier this week with Dan Dresner on why Americans should be more cheerful about the future. He talked about green tech and apocalyptic zombies. Although this Independence Day with the various mass murders, it's hard to be cheerful. Um, And I'm struggling. I have to admit, I'm not sure I could write the book. We've, We've done some shows on the Digital Republic. Did the show with Ian Baruma, former editor of the New York Review of Books, who was a victim, I think, of the, the kind of politics you're not keen on. What are the reasons, Michael, why we should be cheerful, why Americans should be cheerful about the future and why, why the world should understand that America is not yet finished? America is nowhere close to finished. America is by far in its strongest position in its history. America is has a great deal of, of, of reason to be optimistic. America is optimistic. America does dominate the world. It should dominate the world and it will continue to dominate the world in the years to come. We have the strongest economy. We have the most educated and diverse population. We have the most energy. We have the most freedom. Uh, we have every reason to be optimistic and we have reasons to be determined to fix the problems that are in front of us. But but the thing that we have going for us, which is maybe a topic for another time, the thing that we have going for us that no other country in the world has to the same extent is the blood, the blood throws, flows through the veins. We're not sclerotic. Our veins, our arteries are not closed down. We've not made government so big that it controls the flow of our ideas or our economy. We have a bit of a messy day. We have terrible tragedy when it comes to um, gun massacres too often. We have other very difficult internecine battles that are not yet over, as we saw in the, uh, in the uh, abortion case, Dobbs, for example. These are matters of grave concern and grievous concern for people of the United States, and they should be. But the thing that we have going for us, the thing that is not defeatable, the thing that is not available anywhere else, nowhere else, is the extent of the freedom that all of us Americans possess to chart our own futures and to equip ourselves for our future. It is not perfect. And saying what I just said does not mean that it is perfect, but also, by the way, it's not perfectable. One of the, I think the mistakes of the, the left generally is that these things are perfectable. The mess that we have is improvable, but it is not perfectable. And over time, I trust the American people you, me, your friends, your enemies, I trust all of us to figure out our best way forward. Now, that doesn't mean we can avoid these battles. It doesn't mean that we should avoid objecting the things we object to and lamenting the things we lament to, lament and writing Jeremiah's about the things we have to write Jeremiah's about or fighting the policies that we need to fight about. Those are things that we must do in order to get to our better future. However, however, we have not opted yet for the so-called warm blanket of authoritarian control of our lives. Every time we've looked over the edge at that possibility, we've walked back from the precipice and we've embraced our better selves. We have not yet embraced that warm blanket because it might seem good, but it closes off the blood flow in American history. The last time that happened, it was probably in the McCarthy era. On the right, I'd say there's a risk now that's coming from the authoritarian left today. I'm very worried about that. But we have not opted for a socialist future like Europe. We have not opted for a control economy like China. 
Uh, we have a country that is not corrupt, like most of the countries in the world. Uh, in most places, we are not corrupt. Corruption is extremely unusual. We have confidence and faith as we should that our systems generally work almost all the time. This does not mean that we can put down our, our, our spade. There's a, you know that I'm Jewish, there's our you, uh, there's, a, there's a, a Talmudic volume called the Pirkei Avot, the Sayings of the Fathers, which is kind of like the greatest hits reel from the giant uh, many volumes of the, of the Gemara, the Talmud. And in the Pirkei Avot, my favorite saying is this, you are not required to finish your work but nor are you permitted to desist from it. What does it mean? It means that we will never finish this project, but you have to get up every day and contribute to the project. And by the way, because America is what it is, we can have the spillover from the New York Times into the Substack. We can have the spillover from the other media outlet we don't, we don't like to, to, uh, to your show that we're on right now, on now.tv, your daily show. We can find one another, we can make alliances, we can make alliances that are temporary on certain issues or more permanent. And in so doing, we can free ourselves of the worst outcomes and embrace the best ones. And only America can do that. Only America can do that. So I'm very bullish. And anyone who's not bullish needs to go back and read things like the Library of America. This is one of the earlier volumes that they have. Washington Irving, I'm working through it right now and I hope to have a Substack on it soon. Washington Irving was the first great American man of letters, the first guy who made his living, the first Andrew Keene, the first guy who made his living by writing. And by the way, he wrote, as you did in some ways, in some sense, for a British audience in many ways. He wrote 1800, 1805. He wrote about the newly acquired finery of the fashions of the new place called Gotham. He gave us the word Gotham for New York. He gave us the word Knickerbocker for New Yorkers, by the way. And he wrote about the fashions of the time and how people at the theater spit too much and throw too many apples. And the way he articulated all these essays is he took on the personas of different people and then one of, uh, and then and then uh, pretended to have these different voices, and then ex exposed America for what it was in his view um, through those voices. And one such voice was a guy who was basically the emissary for the emir of a North African country, Libya, Tunisia. And Morocco, and what we cognize today those ways. And this emissary would write back to the, the grand grand vizier emir, the emir, not the vizier, and say, "Oh, great, great, so and so. Let me tell you about America." And one of the things, one of the stories he tells, if memory serves, um, is of how you become great in America. And one of the ways you become great in America is whoever can get on all fours and beg for votes. Whoever can get down on all fours and beg for votes faster and longer and better is who becomes great in America. So in 1800, we're reading about Donald Trump, <laughs> okay? <laughs> a guy who definitely got on all fours like a pig and groveled for votes and certainly got a lot of them. Um, I think history will come to repudiate him wholeheartedly. But here we are. If you are not bullish on America, you need only look at our past for what we would say in Hebrew is chizot, or strength. And you will find it. I, I encourage you to be bullish, Andrew, and I encourage you to reconsider your book and to write your book on how on how great America's future is.